for a long time. And I met him when he was a, a coach not too far from here, part of the Black Zillions, and to see him do what he's done over the last five, six, seven years is amazing because this is not an easy thing to do. To open up a gym the way he's done it, it, it it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do. People that have gyms go in debt and you do it because you love it. Not, not to drive a Ferrari because I don't see too many. I got a few next And it leaves us out. Yeah, I got that navigator and it's mine for the next 10 years. Because yes. you know, as soon as I'm done paying for it in another two years, that's it. I'm like, now I keep it. Then I get it. You got a Dodge Ram. I got a Dodge Ram. And Dr. Peacock has been doing this for a long time. He's been a PhD professor at NOVA. Alright, and this guy's got, uh, you want it weight cutting? This guy's got weight cutting to the gram of carbs. I'm old school, you know. I've probably been involved in plus or minus a thousand weight cuts. My last weight cut was at 46, 57 pounds. So I'm no stranger to weight cuts. I mean, I've done it in, at 46, I've done it in my 40s, and I do weight cuts the old-fashioned way. I've, I've updated a little bit, but this guy here is, is like grams and ounces. So right now, if you've got, um, any questions, fire away at them. If not, I'll, I'll, I'll ask them, because I can I can sit with these guys for hours to ask questions. So go ahead. You have them here for a little bit, because they're going to be going home. They have a life. Yeah. I'll go first. When it comes to the weight cut, how soon? Is it, is it OK, we have, we have to fight, and we have a possibility to start now. But how soon do you get the contract signed so it's guaranteed? So how soon do you start? I think that's a that's a really tricky question, and I think we're we, we've had a lot of a lot of changes in what we've been doing in terms of preparation, especially in light of the COVID. You know, you, you got to think with these guys if they're fighting once or twice a year, and now we have a pandemic like this, where maybe that one of those two fights isn't there. That's that's half their income for the year. So we've been kind of in a place where we've had to change up a lot of our training to almost treat everybody as if they are in camp. Uh, you know, to, in, in that case where it's kind of been, you know, we've, we've really increased like from the strength and conditioning side. It's been very much more metabolic than it's ever been. There's not been a lot of a foundation working in that preparation. So I think in that regard, that's been a little bit different in, in what we're trying to do. In an ideal world for us, we like to kind of get that evaluation at the eight-week point. So when we hit that eight-week point, that's where our evaluation comes in. If we can be able to work really high volume and be able to start getting that weight management sort of within, you know, from week eight to about week three. You know, that five-week window is where we really want to be able to get them to exactly where we want them to cut from. If they can take those last two weeks of training and be exactly where we want them to be come fight week and pull that weight off, we're in a really good place because realistically, if you think about it, they're going to spend probably the bulk of their two weeks of their most intensive fight training preparation at the weight going to the fight week at, they're going to pull that weight off as fast as possible, and in an ideal world, they're going to put that right where those two weeks were, and that's kind of the window. So I think really got a couple important points. I think that week eight, I think that week three, and I think that fight week are probably your most important points where you need to be really dialed in with this. Exactly right. I mean, you know, for the most part, I mean, we talk about this, we don't miss weight. No. You know, that's something we don't get over. Is uh, is ten percent still the thumb that you want to be out? So if you're uh, a one seventy, if you're going to be weighing in at one seventy, you want to be in that one eight seven range. I think the ten percent range is a really good, a really good mark. There are certain guys like you know we have our Mike Chandler's who one hundred and fifty five. A lot of usually say about twelve to thirteen percent is okay for somebody like him. I mean, it's just it just is what he is. Those those guys that hold more muscle. Are going to probably have that ability to be able to fluctuate that water. But as a rule of thumb, I think if you use that 10%, I think you're going to be in a, a good spot. Yeah, Tabao. Yeah. Tabao is one of those animals that would drop 30 pounds on a month notice. We did it here. 30 pounds on a month notice. You, you wonder, you talk about, talk about um, the genetics that are coming into the sport, okay? The democratization of sport is. What genetics are we bringing in? I don't think we're seeing the best fighters on the planet. We're seeing the best fighters that have a genetic ability to drop 10, 
12%, 15% of their body weight and not have kidney failure. Because kidney or a heart attack, when you, when you drop that much plasma, all right, your, your heart is spitting out honey. So imagine that your heart needs to spit out, you know, cranberry to get to all the little capillaries and arteries and, you know, all that. And now all of a sudden you're spitting molasses. If that, if that blood doesn't go to the heart, it's a heart attack. If it doesn't get to the brain, it's a stroke. Not to mention the kidneys. My last weight cut from 252 to 197, I was fine. I was fine. Well, I did it over seven months. And uh, four days out when I went to Vegas, I was at two, 209. And I made 97. So I was about 10, 11 pounds out. And it was, it was a good wake-up, and I had a wonderful wake-up, but my kidneys started to spasm. That tells you, I, I, I no longer, if I had it at one time, because I dropped 11 pounds in one day. If I had it at one time, I didn't have it at 46. My kidneys were not taking it. I mean, it, it, it almost like I'm passing a kidney stone type of thing. It spasm, made weight, boom. So you gotta, you got to look at that, too. I think, that's a, I think that's a pretty valid point, too, you know. That realization of, you know, at that point in time that this isn't right for me anymore. You're going to see that evolution with these guys too as they start to get older. I mean, this weight cut doesn't. You, you start to gain more knowledge, but the weight cut process doesn't become more efficient. It becomes more variable as you start to see them, as you start to see them age and, and the body change. And you know, realistically, a lot of our guys too, when we get them at a younger age, they're still developing. I mean, we see yeah, these guys that come. Also, if they understand weight cutting and fighting is different. Than and doing something else because the yeah. most important thing is that you like mentally strong and feel good yeah. and you go into a fight where you already like been through a war to make weight and then the next day you have to just get your mind straight again to fight and then the guy who's hurting you is less like like again like we, we don't have we, we don't miss a lot of weight because we keep it the same way but we have people sometimes before doing it a different way and everybody has different way to all these guys have a different way and they all think they know it we keep it to the scientists, people that go to school for it. Uh, but people cramping up, like they're in the bathtub and they're like, help me, help me, I'm cramping up, I'm cramping up. And I always said to, to the Gilbert, I always said to Gilbert there was a 170 guy. Not because he cannot make 155, he made it and he did good. But you have no chin when you make so much weight cut, you just don't react to it. And now he has the energy to go five rounds. Strong shit. Strong shit, yeah. Training and the right weight. And, and also, I think in our sport, I think fighting and training around 20 pounds, 15 to 20 pounds around your weight class, you fight, you will be, your brain and your body just reacts the right way of fighting life. Otherwise, it's just going to be slow and sluggish. You have, the, you have an advantage with weight in one round, maybe in the first round you'll be stronger than the other guy. But then you see, as a fighter, you see the guy just falling apart, getting tired. And there's nothing better than seeing a big guy getting tired because then you know, okay, I'm just going to fight, now I'm going to go, you know. And, and you can see when they're failing to wake up versus to condition. Because the conditioning failing happens gradually. Yeah. The weight cut, I didn't make, I, I, the last hard weight cut that I made, I went from 217 to 154 in seven months again. Okay? 270, because I went from playing football at U of M back to fighting. So I was fighting, then football, then back. And I didn't, re I didn't re uh, replenish right. First round, bang, bang, bang. It was amateur boxing and I cut the guy. That's how hard I was hitting this dude. And I cut him with a jab. I remember going, boom! And he just slid out of the Whoop your ass. I come into the second round and I threw a right hand. I missed. And then it came back and went like. And it was just one shot. And like a nightmare where you see the guy and you just can't hit him, and you see the shit coming, and you're going, oh no, like, you know? And I got, I got lit up second and third round. And that's, you can see when it's a weight cut issue because the conditioning goes like that. And talk about chin, you have to understand, when you, when you reduce water, okay? When you reduce water up here, okay, that thing loses the cushion. And that's one of the reasons where, where your chin is suspect because your, your ability to get concussed goes through the roof when you're dehydrated. And we're not sure right now if we can dehydrate 17 pounds and then put it back. Okay, where did it come back? 
Does it come back to the brain as fast or the first thing is muscle? So we don't even know that. We don't even know how much fluid the brain loses on a wake up like that and what is the replenishment time. Speaking of that, with, how do you manage like glycogen depletion in terms of performance whenever, especially if you have those last two or three weeks of training where the intensity is really, really high but they're still wanting to cut weight so you don't want to take away from performance in the gym or on the max or whatever. If you're still pulling out carbohydrates, or you're still dropping calories at the same time, you know, especially we have we work with a lot of amateur fighters who a lot of times will take a week or take a fight two weeks out because that's all they can get. So then they have to drop ten pounds in two weeks and still have enough juice to throw. Yeah, up. Ten pounds in two weeks for these guys, right? That's that's a vacation. Ten pounds in two right. weeks? Are you kidding me? Sure, it's more like ten pounds in six hours. You know, for some of these guys, I saw Matt Hughes drop ten pounds in in about. Eight hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, well, what do you what do you think? Well, I think for us, I, I think a big thing is communication. I mean, we talk about this a lot. You know, like we just we have somebody fighting Bellator next week that we've, we've seen this this kind of up and down with him, and, and I think the communication between the coach and staff. And I think that's an important thing. Like as the preparation, as the strength and conditioning guy, you, you've got to have you got to have a direct direct line. You can't can't be a guessing game. You know, it's it's one of those things where it's like. You're out there doing your best, but if you're limited in the information, if your only source of information is the fighter providing the information, you're in a bad situation. You have to understand what 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 they actually did compared to what they're actually what they're doing, um, and I think that just a lot of that becomes management, understanding what your role is. I mean, realistically, if if you're in a situation like that where they're being depleted so much, maybe the best thing for you to do is to give them a night off. Be the, be the one to make the adjustment. I think as strength and conditioning coaches, I think you need to be the one to, to make the adjustments, you know, more than anybody else because, you know, they're skilled at teaching them how to fight. We're skilled at trying to get them to the fight healthy, trying to get them to the fight on weight, trying to get them to be able to perform at their best. But, you know, you got to remember, the best fighter most likely is always going to win, and that's why they're, they're the piece that has to make sure that they get that priority in, in terms of the training and stuff like that. So I think that's the biggest thing, uh, you know, really communicating. You know, I'm looking at, like, for, for my strength and conditioning and stuff like that, I would say our last two weeks, I mean, I can't imagine having them in for more than 35, 40 minutes max. You know, and, and that's kind of one of those things where I think over time with the fighters, they're so used to, for whatever reason, people ramping them up all the way up until fight week and, and that's not the case. I mean, for us, when we hit about that three, you know, from my perspective, from my portion of preparation, when I hit about that three-week mark, that's when we're, we're really tapering. We're really trying to make sure that they have the best abilities to to enhance their skills for that last two weeks when they're being planning and, and all of those things. So I think that's kind of an important piece to it. Yeah, although I'll, I'll manipulate, I don't want to say I manipulate carbs because I don't manipulate carbs from a standpoint if you look at straight carbs. Now, if you're looking at sugar, that's different. But, I mean, if you, for example, broccoli, it's 85% carbs. So, you can't tell me that's a low carbohydrate food. Now, it may be a low sugar food, and that's why one of the things we're going to go through is nutrient timing. If, we have, if after every session you understand you've got about a two hour window, and I like 30, 30 minutes to replenish the glycogen scores, because if you, if, if you miss that two hour window, it takes almost like 40 some odd hours to replenish, at least 24 hours to replenish that. Make sure that if they go with Henry in the morning, they have a little shake with a little bit of good carbs, all right? Then take a nap and then they go back for the afternoon, maybe come here in the middle of the day, whatever it is, you know, the nutrient time is going to be really, really smart. Uh, I think the going into that third week, going into a month out at the right weight is the key. Because if you're not at the right weight or if you take a short, uh, notice fight, and you're 20 pounds up, and you're taking it on three weeks' notice. It, it's gonna, it's not gonna be a pretty camp. I get it. I get it. You need the money. You have the opportunity. I understand, and we'll go for it. But you're not setting yourself up for a good situation. For example, Gilbert. Okay, Gilbert took some short notice. He took what two fights in six weeks. So, so I didn't, I didn't want it. I didn't want it. But he said, I'm gonna take it, Coach. I'm in shape. Bah, 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 and it turned out fantastic. For this one. You don't want to take this fight with Usman in on short notice. I think I like our chances a lot, but like Corey says, eight weeks out, 
I told him, I said, right now, you're 95, fine. Come January, you're going to be hovering around under, under 190. So you want to be 88, 89, come January. And those last four, boom. We hit them with one metabolic shot, good shot, about 10 days out. They're, they're, they're coming down. So when they come in here, they're, they, we just tap them, boom, 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 and we do a metabolic hit once a week. Once a week, fight time. It's UFC at IHP, about 10 days out. And then the last week it's travel and, and wake up and manage it, you know. So I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of manipulating carbs. I would manipulate carbs if I'm doing bodybuilding, but like Henry said, making weight for bodybuilding is one thing. Making weight for this animal here, that's a whole different ballgame. And if you're doing judo or wrestling where you make weight and immediately, or jujitsu and immediately you're getting after it, that's even a worse animal. At least we got 24 hours to replenish. Those guys there, nothing. An hour, and in your case, weight with your gi, and five minutes and you're on the mat. So if you're making weight for that, woo, you got it. That's why I don't have the weight class. Yeah, Dustin <laughs> Bench said it. He goes, my nutrition is a weapon. That's that's what that's what one thing I want. My nutrition is a weapon. I heard that 20 years ago. I we knew it. And the 10 percent, you know, who's, the first time I heard that 10 percent, 1975, Dan Gates. Dan Gates. They were asking. We were at Kim uh, Killian High, and we we're at a big big thing with him for 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 a Saturday. And they asked him, what percent of weight do you like to cut? He goes, 10 percent. 75. So it's nothing new. It's coming along and it's practitioners. And now you got a scientist telling you, eh, pretty close. So I have a question. So to avoid a situation like that where you might take a fight on short notice, because you, know, you hear about guys that like just go off the deep end and eat and gain like 30 pounds and whatever, and then, and then they can't make weight. You know, so. What do you recommend by nature? Like, let's say if they fight at 170, what's the most they should gain between fights? So they don't have to have that problem. I, again, I think that, I think, you know, you usually use the 12%. When you're out of camp, you use the 12%. Yeah, that's your kind of your range, but you like that idea that 8 to 10% when you go into camp. Yeah. Boxing too, you guys. <laughs> well, I mean, even coming into, like, fight with 8 to 10%, is usually most guys are going to off. Even 10% of the weight class. You know, I think the biggest thing, realistically, it's just kind of, it's kind of been that vibe. I think it's been a lot of the accountability in the gym and the amount of people around them that are doing these kind of things. I think it's kind of become culture being yeah. what they're doing for most of them. I won't say all of them. We've still got some people, but I think for the most part, you know, providing them that information. For, you know, had I think, you know, as much as I don't see a bad weight cut, I think a bad weight cuts a, a really big learning opportunity to a fighter. I mean, a fighter goes out and performs, hopefully still wins and performs, but, but learns from that. They don't want to feel that again. Yeah. Those of you who may not know Chris Algieri, okay? Boxing is extraordinaire, uh, nutritionist, real smart guy. And just happens to be a nice guy. <laughs> which, is always, which is always a plus. Henry, I have a question for you, okay? Because I know one of the reasons I, I love the way Henry trains is Henry is not an abusive trainer. He's one of the modern guys that I think has gotten it. So can you tell us about how much live training you guys do and what is the what is your philosophy when you're having guys train live? What are your instructions? What's your intentions? Um, and how do you contrast yourself to the some of these gyms that just have wars? Worse wars in the gyms that you see in the Cajun UFC. Yeah. So what's your philosophy and what's your approach to that? Well, I think it's kind of real simple. First of all, the culture in the gym is important. Like who's in your gym. And if you, if you kind of have rules and everybody that's there know the rules, then you can go, uh, you can go hard with the people that know. Not like at the end of the day, we are like in a hard game. So there will be, we spar once a week hard, like real hard. And that doesn't mean that, uh, that I spar with a guy that doesn't know what he's doing and try to knock him up, but I go with my co colleague, I call, with all, I call all our guys our business partners on the, the mat, 
and we go hard because at the end of the day we want a right hand or a good kick. You cannot just stop it right before it lands. It needs to land. But not with somebody who doesn't know what he's doing. So you go hard, and then, then the other 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 sparring that we do uh, is uh, is less hard in the sense of uh, maybe uh, smaller gloves or technical. But uh, there is no such way, I believe. Uh, I come from kickboxing again. Is uh, my is is that spar hard sparring is very important and uh, drills too. Like you need to get tired when you drill. Uh, it, I hear a lot of terms of play sparring and technical stuff. Yeah, I, I'm also old school, you know. So I, I maybe uh, when I say it, it's kind of kind of funny. But I know one thing that uh, you need to so-called uh, sharpen iron with iron. They say so. Goes a little hard, but not many people that don't know what they're doing. So the intensity needs to be high, and also I think fight training is the most important training there is. So you need to be fight specific. You need to be just like uh, being being able to understand how far you can go with somebody. Right. And then our sport is more difficult because again, I come from kickboxing, Chris come from kickboxing, to M boxing now. But in MMA you have jujitsu, you have wrestling, you have kickboxing, you have taekwondo, you have jujitsu, you have you have strength conditioning, you have yoga, you have pilates, you have, they do whatever they can to get an advantage while the basic is really simple. If you can't punch somebody with a jab in the face, the boxing, you win the fight. The kickboxing, if you give a low kick with it, you win the fight. And then maybe you take a takedown with it, you win the fight. So people make it very, very difficult. We, go, we do simple things a lot and hard. I think that's our motto. And, and, and again, the rules and the culture in the gym, I think that's very important. These people know what they're doing. If we have an idiot in the gym, he won't be in the gym. Just not, just not in the gym. When, when you say hard, I mean, are you looking at intensity, fight hard, or is there is there a we're gonna go hard, but it's a, a mutual work. Yeah. I'm gonna work with you. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm gonna make you work, but if I I mean, when I throw the right hand, it's not gonna be like, you know, I'm throwing the right hand like I mean the UFC where I'm gonna take your head off. I think Chris uh, knows the boxing is I think but it's much different because they have spark partners that they that they pay and they come in and they and they get beat up. But we all have to, we spar most of the time with each other. We all business partners. Right. We all try to get safely to the fight. And they sometimes uh, there's much there's much less of a team aspect in boxing. Right. The right. Boxing gym is not a team sport. It's not it's not like an MMA gym where again because you guys have so many disciplines to work on at any one particular time and you're dealing with the same guys every day. We're not yeah. like that. We go to other gyms. Other guys come from gyms to our gym. Basically, you're there to pick them up, and they're there to beat you up. So we have a lot more um, uh, kind of race pace work than than MMA guys or even kickboxers do. Um, question on because when when I was uh, when I was coming up as an athlete. I had the good fortune of being able to observe Angelo Dundee, Blue Duba, the Fifth Street Gym in Miami Beach. Uh, we had Kid Gabimon in Coconut Grove. You know, I was I'm just old, so I had the chance to spar with Alexis Arguello, Roberto Durante, friends of my dad. Used to eat at my dad's restaurant. So not that I'm good, and not that I'm bad. I just had good family friends, and I was allowed to to be in a ring where I didn't belong. Uh, but I saw them work, uh, especially in judo, what they call situational. And I want to know if you guys use this approach. For example, let's say that I want to uh, practice um, rear naked choke, coming in and setting it up from different situations. And my old coach said, well, if we allow Rondori and we go bang, 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 how many rear naked chokes are you going to get? Let's say. Not many, because he's not going to let me do it. He's not going to let me do it. He's not going to let me do it. You're not going to let me do it. And maybe I get in. Here, tap, okay, you might get three over eight rounds of sparring. But if I go situationals, you can get 30 in 20 minutes much safer. So they would put us in a position, okay, and they would say, okay, Gilbert, you try to do this to prevent him from doing it. Carlos, work on that thing that we talked about, do it. Ready? You got 30 seconds. Go, boom, and, and then stop. The teaching would occur, and then we're going to go again. Okay, try to do this, and we would practice what we called situationals so we could get 30 reps at it. Do you guys use anything like that in in um yeah, in yeah a, we do that because we, we, we have like uh, we have like drills like and you drill with your partner uh, and, and, and that's another thing you know right? okay, you drill in you're drilling wrestling, you're drilling kickboxing, 
it's it's so complicated again because you also have to understand you have five different trainers with five different mindsets that all want the best for the fighter. So uh, it's it, it, that's why it's so it's a difficult sport to be like that. That I always say I'm a uh, I'm the so-called striking coach. I'm not telling these people how to do real neck choke. I look at the the Jago train just to understand the movement, the situations. But I'm not telling Chris how to uh, box, but I learn from his boxing, and, and I stay with my thing, and I think that's very important. In our sport is that if you're good at something, you need to concentrate on that, act open for other stuff so that you understand it, but don't step on somebody else's field. And the other guy needs to understand it, and if you have that relationship, that took us like eight years to get the right people with each other, then for MMA, it's good. Because again, in kickboxing, I have one sensor. Whatever he says, we're going to do. We're not sparring, we're not going to train with another trainer because that's, that's not the way it is. Right. It's loyalty, there's no money involved, it's just your gym and it's skills against skills. But in MMA it's a business. So there's like other people that also have, and then they also have the good attention and they have the knowledge, but on different uh, fields, you know. So it's very hard to co communicate if you're not on the same kind of understanding of it, you know. And again, I never fought in MMA. So I'm, I never fought with small gloves and I never fought in the cage. I have 111 fights, but it's kickboxing. It's totally different. It's still, it's still competition, it's still fighting somebody else, but it's not, no, it's not MMA. So I can, I can tell you easily come up from the floor and get away from the cage, but I've never been in that situation. But I understand it after eight years. So can you imagine four different sports at the same time? It's like, it's very hard. So how do you coach it in the corner? All right, so let's say you're coaching him, and like you say, you're the striking yeah. coach. So how do you give him the instructions if the instructions are related to I think I will touch my coach. You were, you yeah, were, if I, if I, if, let's say yeah. I'm gonna with Greg and with I mean they will say they, they know in the corner that's the cool thing I think with us is okay, I'm so called the head coach because I'm a little uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm I like I like to first of all I'm a vocal guy and I like to solve problems. So that's I'm, I'm always some people who think I'm too much, but I'm a guy that just, I'm stepping in because I want to do it good. Right. The guys who are next to me are like two different type of guys. One is quiet, he's like a master kind of quiet guy who sees everything and then he does this to me and says that. And another guy who touches it, so you have a very good chemical in the corner. Like, we have Daniel, with him we have Daniel who talks about stuff. I mean, give a look at him sometimes think, what he's talking about. He's right. And it works in the fights. So that's why in MMA, again, we have that little corner where Chris, at the highest level in boxing, knows that you need to trust that guy that's there, you know, whatever he says. But he won't trust me when I speak. I go for a, for a real naked choke, you will look at me like, I'll tell you. <laughs> so in the corner, is, you'll be a boom, 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 and then you'll, you'll point to the coach yeah. and say, give him yeah. the instructions. Or even if it's like if I was in the corner with, like, say, Chris, and that's like, that guy has, has good over advice. Like boxing-wise stuff, I don't even need to say it. We walk up on the, on the, we take the ice bag, we walk up on the stairs, Chris, you first. Got or it. That guy yeah. first. And he talks. Cool. cool. Yeah. So I have, so yeah, boxing obviously is different. It's, it's one sport, man. It's just, it's just, man, it's just hands, just boxing. I have two very polar coaches in terms of their coaching style, in terms of what they're good at. Um, Andre Razier and Pete Trimble. Pete Trimble is, a, is, a, is an MMA coach first. I'm his first professional boxer. So they take turns speaking. Andre will go first, he's the lead guy, just because I like the way he speaks, but he'll, he'll talk and he'll talk to me for whatever, he'll point out certain things, and then the other coach will come in and he'll put in his points. And both of them have seen me throughout camp. I don't have both of them with me every session. So they kind of overlap in terms of what they're able to teach. But at the end of the day, it's up to the guy in the chair to make whatever happens. The, the coaches, even, you know, he's saying, you know, telling me about over here, right? He's cueing me. He's cueing me for what I know I need to do. I'm seeing what's out there too, but then that cue he makes something that much more, um, that much more focused for me, so I can focus on that one thing. Or maybe I'm making a mistake that I don't even know I'm doing, and he brings it out from that, that immediately. That my job now is to fix that. So having different eyes is always always good, and being able to communicate that to the, to the fighter because at the end of the day they have to make it happen. Because you can tell me everything under the sun, if I don't go out there and do it, it doesn't matter. So, for everybody who doesn't know this handsome young man, Gilbert Burns, the next 170 UFC champion, for sure. Yes, sir. We're, we're
we're, we're saving more money because we're going to make bet on that. He's going to help me pay the down payment on my house. <laughs> so he doesn't know it yet, but uh, I'm in the market right now, so. A lot of pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Hey, no pressure. You lose, I lose my house. Okay, no pressure. So, uh, like to, what made you change other than your wife? Which I, know, which I know is your boss and your agent. But what made you change to 170? What was the final struggle? Uh, there was a lot, a lot of points, but I think the main one was my nutrition, he was there by the last weight cut, and the way he spoke to me, I was like, okay, yeah. It made me realize I was doing something wrong. And all the coach Carter was saying, through the years, Harry was saying, no one liked it, my wife didn't like it. Yeah. So, oh my God! I've seen I've seen healthier people at concentration camps. <laughs> you know when they pull people out of concentration camps, they look better than this. Look at that. <laughs> That's not his little brother. And, and and this is what this is what Henry and, and Corey were talking about. This is the trade the trade off. I want to go through this to get the smaller guy. Number one, everybody's doing it, so you're not getting a smaller guy. And number two, if you are getting a smaller guy, if you're going to be a shadow of you. This is who's going in. Well, granted, it's 24 hours, so he looks a little bit more. But there's no way you're going to do that to a body, and in 24 hours, you're just going to be great. Yeah, I mean, even, even in the old days when IVs were allowed, it's still an asking. And like we say, we don't know... We don't know that brain hydration, how fast that occurs. You know, it's like if you miss the two hour windows of carbs on a carb depleted muscle, you're not going to get days of like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll do a steak later on tonight and I'll have an apple. No, if you miss that two hour window, it takes time to get glycogen back into the thing. Okay, if you drop 20 pounds in three days, okay. That's got to come from that body, so it's plasma. So your, your, your heart and your kidneys are pumping molasses. How long does that take to get back across the uh, blood-brain barrier? Because the brain is just not open. It doesn't have a faucet. It's got a filter, and it doesn't allow too many things across that filter. It's in that blood-brain barrier where the acidity receptors are. So your muscle can get down to a pH of 4. Yeah, it'll burn and bother the shit out of you. You'll, you'll be like this, trying to get rid of hydrogen. But that brain, that brain is the one that checks. Is it 7.2? 7.1? Shut you down. Because acid will burn me. So look at all of the stuff that you're dealing with when you're dealing with weight cuts. And, and I'm, I'm thinking that most of those things we don't know. We don't know what impact that has on the brain. And how long it takes for that brain to come back to normal. I think there's, a, there's an interesting point I'll let you talk about because I know you, you know the detail and you know the people involved. But if you look at boxing over the past, you know, what was that, the past two years, two years ago? Gee, about two and a half years. Right, there was three deaths. In three, boxing. yeah. Three, three guys under 30 years of age who were top contenders. Two of them were undefeated. Uh, one guy had a few losses but was still 26 years old, 26 years old. Half died. In, in, well, sorry, two died. two died. One of them is. Uh, in a persistent, well, was in a persistent vegetative state for a long time. Now is is a quadriplegic, uh, and both got all three of these guys under under 30 years of age. Um, they were all I know for a fact they all cut a lot of weight just from knowing them personally, knowing their coaches. And oddly enough, or not, their contests that they were injured in all had a mandatory day of the fight reweigh in, where they had a limit how much they could rehydrate from the day before getting up to the fight. I think this is. Tremendously dangerous. Uh, I've been trying to speak to anyone who will listen from the government agencies who are doing this in boxing and saying it's a very bad idea. The worst part about it is an absolute number. They're saying you get plus 10 pounds, not a percentage. So a 180 pounder gets 10 pounds, a 122 pounder gets 10 pounds to gain from the weigh in until the morning of the fight, which is, makes zero scientific sense whatsoever. So you have these kids who they were all around 140 to 150 which are some of the weight classes where guys cut the most weight. Those middle weights for boxers. Uh, after that, guys don't cut as much. Under that, guys do cut a lot, too. Um, but those guys in those middle weights do cut, but they also hit really hard, too. So that's where you see a lot of damage. Um, 
all three of those guys had a mandatory day of the fight weigh-in where they only allowed plus 10 pounds. Limiting rehydration is stupid. Right? It doesn't make any sense. You, know, you don't see guys getting injured because one guy's too big. You see guys getting injured because one guy's too dehydrated, just like JC said. We don't know exactly how the brain rehydrates and how much time it takes, um, what the processes are from here to here exactly yet. So uh, I think it's a very dangerous thing that, that's being done right now and is, is exactly what, what JC is saying. We don't know exactly, and to make rules like that is, is, is not absurd. Yeah, that guy's losing 20, 25 pounds, 10 pounds of a ballpark fighter. And then getting hit by that right. for 10, 12 rounds. That's fantastic. That, that's a standard rule? No, no, it's, no, it's, it's for, uh, the IBF has it, it's the International Boxing Federation has a, a second day weigh-in. And I've worked with fighters who had that, and I literally said, get rid of your belt. Relinquish the belt. You don't have to pay the sanctioning fee. You're going to lose the belt. You win the fight, you lose the belt, whatever. But is that is that one of those guys on Pressure Colon? What's that? Is one of those guys Pressure Colon? Pressure Colon, yes. Pressure Colon was one. Yeah, um, so he fought in, um, I believe, the state. I believe that was the state rule. It might have been Virginia or something. That wherever they fought, they had that rule. Yeah. Uh, Pressure Colon was one. Yeah. Patrick Bay was another one. He was fighting for the IBF Intercontinental title. Um, and then. Uh, the third, the third, yeah, yeah, yeah. The third was uh, Maxim Derashin, and uh, he was last summer, and yeah, he was an undefeated guy. And I believe that was another IBF title eliminator. Question for you: um, I know that when I met you, and then when we started training, we used to go fairly heavy, you know, on on our um, strength phase. You used to do deadlifts, you had three plates on each side, you had deadlifts of over 300 pounds for doubles and triples, because so, he's strong. You know, some people are not naturally strong, he's naturally strong. I mean, look, you can just see his morphology, his legs, his, his wrists, and he's just a strong cat. Yeah, he's, he's small, he's small, full tight neck, you know, it's very different to see him look, you know. But, um, Explain to them how you feel now. With the light, when was the last time you deadlifted 300 pounds here? <laughs> Two years? Yeah. You're not doing that heavy, but you feel very strong. You're not What did you feel in that Woodley fight when you kept saying, Coach, we're not training, we're not even like, um, we're not even turning the, the circuits that we used to turn for time. 525, 540, now those circuits take us seven minutes because of the psychomotor vigilance. Now I can ask him to do certain things that he would pace himself for, because I, what I learned is that neuromuscular efficiency is, a, is incredible. Everything is that. that. I have a friend that works for a VersaClimber, and that's all he does, VersaClimber. And the dude can hit VersaClimber and almost rest on the VersaClimber, because he has that so, his, his uh, coordination is so incredible, it's like the boxers that can skip rope for an hour and they spar for 30 seconds and they're tired because they're so, so efficient that they're not even working, okay? So, I was able to ask him for more on the Versa climb. But he would say, but, but I'm gonna be tired for the super legs. I'm gonna go, no, because I'm gonna teach you how to rest when you're tired. And so, he would go harder on the super legs, harder on everything, because then I would give him whatever he needed. I said, you can rest whatever you want. You just have to be vigilant when you're resting. So I would move him around and chase him, yeah, make him chase real. And when I say chase real, I mean, you know, fighting chasing, not like hide and seek chase, you know? <laughs> and so he would, he would tell me, he would say, we're, we're not working as hard, but I'm so tired. And it was, the, it was the, the brain, but his body, nothing hurt. So how did you feel after we, we moved to that, that type of, of training where it's not as compressed as before. It's just compressed, fight, compressed, fight, compressed, fight. How did you feel uh, on the Tyrone Wood where you lost so I remember, I remember asking Harry, remember? Oh yeah, he asked me before what round it was. I said it's the four rounds, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I said, you got only five more minutes to show everybody how great you are, okay? You didn't get tired at all. But, but that's, that's what we as coaches have traditionally been used to, and, and, and skilled coaches too, beat the shit out of your people so they're ready. And I'm now convinced that people don't become ready 
because they didn't get enough shit done. They didn't become ready because they didn't train to be ready. So you can, I've seen it. Guys who are in great shape, but they fight at a certain tempo. And when you raise that tempo and you get them out of that vigilance where now they're not here. They have to be here. That is like a, a heavy day at the office where you're making decisions and, and, you're, and you finish the day and you're exhausted and you haven't done anything. And it's that exhaustion, I think, that we're working on. Because believe it or not, we were doing too much metabolic stuff. If this can only take 14 ounces of water, 16 ounces ain't going to do me no good. So my question is, how many car pushes did he need to get ready for a fight? How many rounds does he need to get ready for a fight? And the, and the thing is, he's in plenty shape. What I, what I felt was, was needed was he needed to stay sharp. And if it's not for Tyrone Woodley, because I didn't train him like that against the Russian, because I was afraid of the Russian. I was afraid of his, of his new weight class for that Russian. 170, short, against an undefeated Russian, I just didn't like it. Okay, but he said, look, I'm in shape, coach. I've been helping um, Robbie Lawler. And I go, well, if he's been sparring with Robbie Lawler, give me Robbie Lawler for four weeks. He says, I've looked at my schedule, coach. I've looked at my schedule. I'm in shape. I'm going, I want it, but if you decide to, I'm with you 100%. We couldn't do anything. Okay, so I wasn't afraid of that. I was afraid of Tyrone moving. And I've only one thing that, that Tyrone has. <clears throat> That pop that he has that, that'll move things really quick. So I said, if he doesn't catch you, you got him. But you got to stay vigilant. You gotta stay vigilant. We got and we work that vigilance out of control. Henry was even kind enough to come in here and we would get this guy tired on airdyne, and then Henry sharp. And the thing that I kept going is faster, faster. Because I noticed even in sports training. They tempo it. They tempo it. And these guys get so good at dancing together that they're, they're, they're great dance partners and he knows what he's going to do, he knows what he's going to do, and they move. You know? And that's fine, but what I try to do here is get them out of that. Now, I don't want them to dance with me. I want them to react. There's a difference. There's a difference. In practice, you can dance, but when I'm doing the psychomotor vigilance, that, that has to be the da -da -da, da -da -da, and you have to stay really, really sharp. And I think that was a determining factor in how sharp he was for 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 what and mind you, he'll tell you, metabolically, it was the easiest camp he had. No car pushes, right? These are your five car pushes here. And let me tell you, you do one car push around here, your legs are wasted. He used to do five. If we were getting ready for, for three rounds, we have days where we would do five. Okay? We don't we don't we don't even need that anymore. I'll do a car push here and there, but it's not like before. It's not like before. So, how do you feel now with this with this new thing that we've done, with, which we've lowered the strength component, and we've kept the metabolic more or less the same, even even dropped it a little bit? And he he even goes on the bench sometimes heavier than I like because you know he. Two young young bucks they want to play, so they put three plates on one three plates. Like, plates, man. But you know he ham he hammers them pretty easy, so I let them go. But uh, those big bench presses are the ones that mess with the with the shoulders and all that. We don't need that. We don't need that. You know. If you had to give a person that's sort of following your footsteps as coaches as athletes a message or tips. Going in the same field, what would you say from your guys' experience, from coaches and athletes? Me? Well, everybody. Everybody. I'll just you go down the line. I'll just go down the line. Well, I, I also had a question for you guys about the uh, strength conditioning guys. But, uh, and this is a little bit of the answer that I'm going to give you. Is that, again, traditional sports, where I come from, we do a lot of repetitions, simple stuff, and we do it good, and we know when to do it. We make the right decision at the right time. And we are very good uh, risk business because you make one mistake here on your ass. It's totally different than any other sport. It's a very lonely sport. And uh, what I see, what, what I always, what, what makes me always uh, curious and talk to him a lot about it, and that's one of the reasons why I'm here because I think you're not like that. But I see a lot of strength and conditioning coaches doing a lot of like 
so-called innovation stuff and like the, 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 like the most, if you look at it, I think it's funny, like they do so much stuff and they think it's working for the fire, you know, it's like, uh, it's like, you know, they throw stuff at you when you run in, you have to catch it like a boomerang, all that shit. <laughs> listen, I'm not saying bad stuff about other coaches, but right, I just right, want right. to understand something, like, if you have 20% of what you guys do, add to us, to the sport that these people have to go to, they have to fight. Why in the hell, if you have 20%, why in the hell try, try to make it so difficult? If you know that you, you guys are so knowledgeable about food, about strength, about why, why does the other guys all just do all this funny stuff? Is it just because they want to be a part of something? Social media, it's clicks. It's, it's YouTube. So people look at them, wow! And then... No, but I, I see that, I see that, first of all, and that the trainers that are training them, that they think that they, they... So first of all, communication is very important, right? So if you have training in the morning, you, the trainer knows what you're doing, you kind of know that you already know how to punch you know how hard it is, and they, they still try to throw all this stuff, and while we've been doing all simple stuff, and what I see from you, because I've been here a couple simple stuff, and, and it all works, you know, but why is there still these people just... Why didn't they just follow the footsteps and keep it, keep it like very simple? Because again, in my sport, it's striking, I'm not, they also, also so-called being a super coach and everything, but I'm not doing anything special. It's still a one-two, one-one-two. Yeah, but that's what, that's what makes you a great coach. It's, a, it's the MacGyver. Good pace, right? Simple stuff, you know. Oh, the car doesn't start, then you have a paper clip. Oh, here. Whoa. Yeah, you fix the, the stuff with the simple. Simple things work. Because you're right, you know what? It's still, any way you cut it, yeah. it's left, right, hook. Take down and, and the basics, you know, talking to um, Hoist Gracie. I, I spent about two or three hours at one of the nights talking to Hoist. It's simple stuff. He goes, hell yeah, simple stuff. I was small. I was just wait my time, let him get tired, and it was always the same thing. Arm bar, guillotine, yeah. rear naked, yeah. try it. But we still, we, we, have, we have a beautiful gym. We have the best coach in the world. We have the best people in the world. But we're still losing fights to people that have not, none of this. We're still losing fights to people that have no great coaches and no good players. So, that, and that's what we were talking about. What's making people better? And if you're looking, if you're losing to people that are not doing what you're doing, then you gotta go, okay, is what I'm doing making him better? And then how come he's not doing it and he's beating his ass? It's what, I'm, what, I, what I tell everybody. We're not making people better on the training side. That's not what's making them bigger, faster, stronger. What's making the sport bigger, faster, stronger is the democratization of sport. Okay? At first, we didn't have the athletes that we, that we have now. We had the same people. But it's a new sport. We have bouncers. We have pit fighters. We have people stomping up heads while they're holding out. That's who came. But there was $50,000, and you have to fight four times in a night. Who wants to do that? The pit fighter and the, and the bouncer. The tank addicts of the world. Now, it's a $7 billion company, okay? And some of these guys are making millions of dollars. That attracts more eyes, more eyes, more genetic potential. So now you start getting the John Jones. A long time ago, we got the St. Pierre's. Before that, we got the Matt Hughes. Before that, we had Louis Gracie. So the democratization of sport has allowed to bring the genetic pool. Now you're choosing from a million potential athletes. That's a lot of genetic stuff, and that's why, as the genetics gets better, okay, you have to understand that as strength and conditioning coaches, this is another thing, ego-driven. The strength and conditioning coach, okay, is up and coming. Personal training is only 36 years old, brand new, okay? We, we want we, we to be somebody. We want strength and conditioning coach. I'm, I'm important. You are important, but you're more like a broker of resources. That's what Corey was saying. As a strength and conditioning coach, you have the ability to pull back and say, okay, what about nutrition? What about your rest? When are you training with Henry? Henry, when is he going hard? So I know what to do here. And communication. So you can be the broker of his resources. Resources, energy, sleep, bone, ligament. You gotta, you're controlling and protecting that. That's your job. And you have to understand, as a strength and conditioning coach, you step out of the way. Your job is not to make a better fighter. That's his job. Your job is to make him better for practice, because it's at practice where he's getting good. That's where he's chunking. A better athlete? You make him a better athlete here, so then he can make him a better fighter. Yeah. 
So my job is to hand Henry, a great athlete that's capable of going an hour if he needs, charge him. Now where he fades in 20 minutes and Henry's saying, do this, and he's like, no, here, for an hour and a half and a half, that's my job. Make him hardy so he can take the training and step out of the way. Most trainers want to be, you know, on the strength and mission, I'm going to beat his ass and he's going to be in shape because of me. No, wrong approach, wrong approach. Let him, let him make the fight. Give him the athlete and step out. And that's why I don't go to any fights. I went to one, I went to two fights, I think, both with Jeff Munson, okay? I do my job here. I do, and I, I realized it early. Vitor asked me to go to his fight. Thank God I didn't go because I couldn't stand for that last beat that he took from me. He was in the best shape of his life. But anyways, he asked me to go. I won't go. I will not go. I, I'm here. I'm here for this guy eight weeks out. <clears throat> I put my love into him. I put everything into him. And then I'm at home. Let them. Let them do. That's their job. So don't, don't come in swinging like this is your world because it's not. It's his world. And these guys are the ones who make them better. Support the training. That's a big thing. One of the reasons that actually bringing back down the training actually gives me more resources. And I understand now that you have to, you have to have energy to rest. That's that's the one thing. That's the biggest. Wow. <clears throat> you want to fall asleep? You can't fall asleep exhausted. One thing is collapsing, and the other thing is resting, recovering. Two different things, and fighters think it's one and the same. No, you need energy to sleep. And if I exhaust the living daylights out of him, and he has insomnia because he's beating him up, I'm beating him up, and he's just getting beat up, then guess what happens? Upper respiratory infection is the next thing that happens. Now he's dead. So that's the one thing that, that uh, you have to check your ego at the door. Support. The technical training. That's our job. It's not to take main stage.